We continue this morning in our series called Then and Now, where for the first few weeks we looked at the history of our church, the stories out of Lover's Lane's past that inform our present and also our future. And then for the last few weeks, you've been stuck with me as we've talked about evangelism. What does it mean to take this identity and to get it out into our community, to share this message of love with the world around us? Today, we continue in this discussion around evangelism in a message I've titled, Learning to Listen. Recently, I heard a report that is both fascinating and frightening. Doctors are discovering a new health crisis that is quickly growing into what could one day be the number one health crisis that we face. This problem, this issue, has the effect of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Through brain scans and other technology, we can see that this problem has the same impact on the human body as living as a lifelong alcoholic. This problem is taking years off of lives because of the damage it has done psychologically and physically. And I bet some of us have personally struggled with this health concern in the past. And quite possibly some of us in the room have it right this very second. And I bet someone you know has it and you have no idea. Would you like to know what it is? Loneliness. Loneliness. My wife Reagan first heard this report on a podcast hosted by Jen Hatmaker, a Christian author and pastor whom my wife has a professional crush on. Yes? Yes. (laughs) Jen was talking with Shasta Nelson another Christian leader who devotes her ministry to understanding relationships and especially meaningful friendships. Shasta said that as she learned more about the health effects of loneliness, she discovered that doctors, when treating patients for obesity or chain smoking or alcoholism, they've learned that in order to give their patients the best fighting chance, they need to get their patient some friends. Loneliness is a powerful enemy in our lives. So many of us carry it with us day in and day out. And as we continue our conversation around evangelism, we have to recognize that many of the people we encounter may be incredibly lonely. How should that affect our witness? There are many scriptures that teach us by telling us how we ought to live. And then there are scriptures that show us what faithful living looks like. Today we will read one of those stories. When Jesus happens upon a woman at a well, and through the gift of conversation, her life and the lives of her community are changed. I'll ask you only to rise in spirit for this slightly long passage from Gospel of John chapter 4. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, And who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. 
Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as he did, as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she said. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, and when He comes, He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I the one speaking to you, I am he. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be, to God. Thanks be to God. This is a beautiful story about how a woman who is incredibly lonely, visiting the well at the hottest hour at noon when no one else would be there, ostracized because of her sins, she encounters the living God who offers her living water. And through the art of conversation, she and her community are healed. Today, I want to lift up a few truths this story reminds me of, and how Jesus' example of healthy evangelism can shift our own approach as we tell our friends and community about the God we know here at Lover's Lane. So in a small Mississippi town, Myrtle and Rose are sitting under the hair dryers at a hairdresser having a chat. Myrtle says to Rose, so Rose, how's that daughter of yours? And Rose replies, oh, she's great, thanks. She married a fantastic man. He's got such a good job in the city that she gave up her secretary work. She stays at home, but she never needs to cook because he always takes her out. And she never has to clean the house because he got her a maid. And she never has to worry about my two lovely grandbabies because he got her a live-in nanny. And Myrtle asks her, you know, I heard your son got married too. How's he? And Rose replied, oh, his life is awful. He married such a witch. She never cooks anything, makes him take her out to dinner every single night. God forbid she should ever use a vacuum on the carpet, so, he made, so he, she made him get her a maid. He has to work like a dog because she refuses to get a job. And she never takes care of my grandson because she made him get her a nanny. Perspective is important. <laughs> Each of us look at the world in different ways. 
And what may look great to you may look awful to me. Amen? It can be hard to be mindful of this simple truth, especially when in conversations of evangelism and faith. Sometimes I feel like we approach the evangelistic moment as though we are supposed to have a script of who Jesus is and what Jesus has meant for our life. The problem with that kind of approach is that people know when they're listening to a script. The problem with scripts is that the only thing that changes is the person's name at the start. Have you ever heard a telemarketer give you a call? Hello, Mr. My name is Gilliland. They always get it wrong. I always know when it's a telemarketer. It's great. Nobody likes to feel like they are interchangeable, like they are not that important. I love that as he witnesses to the woman at the well, Jesus takes time to understand who she is and to hear her perspective and her story. He takes time to talk with her. He doesn't just recite the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, it's a good sermon, but he doesn't just spew all this truth to her. Instead, he engages with her in a conversation designed for her in that moment. It can be easy to forget that not everyone needs to hear the gospel in the same way. Our own Bibles are a testament to that. Mark's gospel was written to embolden early Christian disciples. Luke's gospel was for the Greek culture. Matthew's gospel was for the Jewish culture. And John's gospel was for a later Christian community who needed clarity and theological foundation. Each gospel tells the same story, but in a different way. Our own evangelism ought to take on the same shape. So let's agree to stop with the telemarketer scripted out approach to evangelism and instead do our best to understand the person that we are evangelizing, to understand their perspective. If we begin to understand their story, then we may begin to understand how the gospel needs to sound to them. After any acts of violence with racist intent, I'm reminded how important it is that we open ourselves to dialogue with those whose lives are radically different from our own simply because of the color of their skin. We cannot begin to understand what Jesus must look like and sound like for people of different cultures and creeds and ethnicities until we take the time to truly understand their stories. Let me put this provocatively, because I'm young and I can as long as we attempt to sell the world a white American vision of a white American Jesus, we will have failed the gospel. Jesus is the one who unites us, gathers us around his well full of living water so that we might encounter stories radically different from our own and that we might actually be changed by them. There is good news here, my friends. I can tell you that the conversations I have had in my life with friends of color, those conversations in which I hear their experiences of racism at the hands of white individuals, those are difficult conversations to be sure. But I never regret bearing witness to their story. I never regret the moment of repentance when I stand convicted before my God and I wonder, have I done enough? Have I said enough? Have I worked actively for racial justice enough in my own life? How many racist comments have I let slide in conversation? How many racist actions have I witnessed and yet done nothing about? 
The good news, my friends, is that when we listen, when we really listen to their stories, even and especially the painful ones that are hard to hear, when we listen to these stories of racism experienced and we allow them to change us, we will live far greater into the call for justice that God has placed on each of our lives. So um, when I was about four or five years old, I had a speech impediment. Anybody else? Speech impediment, kids? Unite. I overcame it. Sesame Street for me was Fweet Fweet. Lucky Charms was Yucky Farms. Captain Crunch was Captain Fwunch. One day my aunt was picking me up from school and she asked me about my day. I was very excited to tell her all about it. I don't know if you pick up on this. I was a talkative kid. When I got to explaining to her what I had for lunch or what I had for yunch, she got confused. I said, and for yunch, I ate fwing seeds. She said, fwing seeds? I said, no, Aunt Debbie, fwing seeds. She said, Scott, it sounds like you're saying fwing seeds. Is that Aunt Debbie, I'm getting very frustrated at this point. Aunt Debbie, no, weed my whips, yike a wope, fwing seeds. She says, oh, string cheese. I said, yes, Aunt Debbie, fwing seeds. Yike, I said. It can be incredibly frustrating when we feel like we are not being heard. Amen? It's like when the phone cuts out, but the person on the other end doesn't know they can't hear you, and they just keep going. Not being heard can be frustrating. It can also be painful especially if we feel like nobody hears us in our daily lives. When I first felt a call to be a pastor, I thought I would go to seminary and get all this great advice that I could bestow upon anyone who wandered into my office in a crisis. What I've since learned is what they really want is for someone to listen because they probably feel like no one in their life really does. Not feeling heard as an entire people group is more painful even still. My friends and colleagues of color have grown exhausted of hearing people in our country and in our communities claim that organizations like Black Lives Matter are unnecessary because racism is not the issue it once was in our country. And then an event like what happened in Charlottesville takes place. And we can no longer deny that what we wish was in the past is actually right here in front of our faces. Those of us who would like to move on from the national debate around race and racism need to repent this morning and confess that we have not heard our sisters and brothers who have been telling us all along that racism is real and more prevalent than we could possibly know. Why do we need to see a crowd of angry white men carrying torches and waving Nazi flags and shouting white supremacist chants, why do we need to see such blatant racism to understand that everyday racism might just be real as well? Why do we need to, have, why do we need to be shown images and video of a car fueled by racist hatred slamming through a crowd of people for us to believe racism is far from dead? Why can't we listen when our brothers and sisters tell us what they know to be true? Why is that not enough? I think the problem that we run into is we want a quick fix. We want a solution and we want it yesterday. 
And it's best if the solution is our idea. It's why early on in my career in ministry, and heck, early on in our marriage, Reagan, I thought that when a congregant came to me with a crisis or when Reagan came to me to vent about her day, it was my job to offer the best solution as quickly as I could, right? No. Of course, I've learned that is simply not true. What they need in that moment is my attention, my empathy, my presence, and my humility, not to offer up what may sound like easy answers to me, but instead to offer a listening ear that says, I hear you, and I'm sorry. Nine times out of ten, the congregant really just wants to be told that what they're feeling is normal. And Reagan wants to know that what she's going through really is as frustrating as she believes. What they don't need are my quick fixes. In fact, many times what I find is they have a much better idea of what they need than I do. Jesus lives as an example for us in this way. At the well, he doesn't try to fix her life in a moment. What he does is he talks with her. He listens to her. He shows her that he understands her story and who she is, and then he invites her to be in relationship with him. What if we adopted this example in our evangelism and in our public witness? What if we allowed those we evangelized, that, what if we showed those that we evangelized that we wanted to hear them, really hear them, and that their story was critically important to us? What if we took this opportunity as a country and locally as a church to stop yelling at one another, to leave the echo chambers where every talking head agrees with us, and instead decided to really listen and hear someone whose story or perspective is different from our own? Jesus' example reminds me and it reminds all of us this morning that sometimes what people need to hear most is that they've been heard. The story of the woman at the well doesn't stop when she leaves, though. In fact, I think that perhaps the most powerful part of her story begins when she re-enters her community. She's just had this overwhelming experience with God. She's witnessed for herself the love of a Messiah who listened to her, and she becomes one of the very first evangelists in the Gospels. In verse 28, it says this, then leaving her water jar, she doesn't even care about the water jar anymore, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? My relationship with Christ has had its ups and downs. If your relationship with Christ has had ups and downs, say amen. There have been seasons in my life when I've had tears of joy in my eyes praising God, and there have been seasons in my life when I've wanted nothing to do with God because I felt abandoned, and I felt everything in between. When I was younger, the idea of evangelizing sounded so intimidating because my relationship with God felt so complicated. I felt like if I was going to share the gospel with somebody, which version of the gospel do I share? Do I share my relationship with God that's rosy and sunny and happiness and rainbows? Well, if all I do is that, then surely they'll sniff me out for a fraud. But then if I tell them the real stuff, the hard stuff, the difficult stuff, is it even going to sound enjoyable at all? I got so hung up on this idea 
of selling them my relationship with God that I ended up staying silent. And then I come across this story of the woman at the well. And more importantly, I see her testimony to the community when she leaves. Instead of selling them on Jesus, she asks them a question that I think is beautifully simple and profound. Could this be the Messiah, she says. She doesn't say, hey, I found the Messiah. He's right over there. She doesn't say, ooh, let me tell you all about Jesus the Christ. He's at the well. I know he's the Savior. What she says is, could this be the Messiah, the man who knows me in a mysterious way? I wonder how it might change our evangelism and our witness if we approached our community with this question in mind. I imagine all the different people she must have brought back with her to Jesus, their stories that they could tell, the ways in which Jesus would know each of them just like he had known the woman. I wonder who Jesus the Messiah was for each of them. I wonder, was it living water he offered them or did he offer them something else? What did salvation and resurrection look like from their point of view? These are the questions we have to be willing to ask when we take up the sacred task of evangelism. We must be ready and willing to do a great deal of listening if we hope to have anything of substance to say. So will we listen to God? Will we listen to the person we are sharing God's love with? Will we listen to the moment and allow ourselves to be fully present? If we are willing to take a chance and to listen, it just might change our lives. I want to close today with a testimony about what listening has done for my life and the way that God has changed my life through the art of listening. I met a young man named Thierry Ishimwe about two years ago, a Lover's Lane student ministry mission trip down in the bayous of Louisiana. It was hot and it was gross and it changed my life. Thierry was on my work team and at lunch we would stop and have lunch together and we would talk and we would ask questions and we would get to know one another. One of the questions that I asked was a simple one, what's your favorite memory? And I thought I knew what the answers would be. Most kids will say, oh, I loved that trip with my parents, or I loved when we got a puppy, or I loved this one Christmas. I got some of those answers. And then Terry said, my favorite memory is when I set foot on American soil for the very first time. And that began my listening to Terry's story. Terry was born in a small country called Burundi, near uh, Congo and Uganda. He had lived in a refugee camp uh, because the area he lived in was wrapped up in violence. He and his brother lived there with his mom and dad, and one day violence came into the community, into the refugee camp, and his mom and dad were at work. So he and his brother were taken by a family friend and they fled. He didn't know, they didn't know where his mom or dad were for over a month. Finally, they found his mom at another refugee site in another country, I believe at that point, Uganda. They didn't know where his dad was. 
They wouldn't reestablish contact with his father for seven years. They had no idea where he was, if he was alive or dead. They found him in Rwanda. They were already in the visa immigration process. It's a long, arduous process. He and his family were weeks away from coming to America. And they faced this critical question because the problem was his dad hadn't entered the process yet. They had to make a choice. Will we come to America without him and trust he'll come later? Or will we reset the clock and do this all over again? They chose to come and to have faith that his dad would come be with them again. It took two years for his dad to come to America. Terry hadn't lived with his dad for a decade. So I'm hearing Terry's story. He's telling me about this. And of course, my jaw is on the floor. Like, what have I done in my life? Oh my gosh, it's been so easy. And so another day comes by. We ask some more questions. And I, I say, um, what do you want to be when you grow up? Of course, I get answers. I want to be a teacher. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a doctor. I said, you don't want to be a lawyer. No, I'm kidding. Um, gets to Terry, and Terry looks me dead in the eye, straight face, no joke. I want to be a soccer player. He's not kidding. I want to be a soccer player. I said, okay. So I went, and I talked to some of his friends, because, you know, there's kids that say they want to play professional sports. You, go, you know, he says he wants to play basketball, but he's four foot nothing. Are you sure? You know. Uh, I said, is, is he really good at soccer, or does he just want to play? They said, no, he's really good at soccer. So I said, Terry, um, what are you doing to play soccer? I said, you want to play in college, right? He says, yeah, I want to play in college. That's my dream. If I could play soccer in college, that would be everything. I said, okay. I said, so are you, what club team are you on? He said, I'm, I'm not on a club team. I said, oh, I don't know much about the soccer world, or I didn't at the time, <laughs> Uh, I said, but these club teams, these, you know, select soccer clubs, that's how you get into a college team. I mean, it's everything. I said, why aren't you on a club team? He said, well, you know, my mom, this, at this point, she was the only one here. My mom, she works all the time, and I can't get to practice. We can't pay for it. It's just too much. So I just play for my school team. And have you ever had those moments when you can hear God, like, yelling in your ear, like, this is something you need to do? And you're like, shut up, God. I don't want to, yeah, this is going to be a lot. That's where I was. If I'm being brutally honest, I thought, oh, boy, what am I getting myself into? And so I said, against my better judgment and without consulting Reagan, uh, hey, Terry, what if I could help you get into a soccer club? What if, what, what if I could help make that happen? He, that would be awesome. Okay. I chose to listen to his story. But then what happened next is incredible. This story is not about... Pastor Scott doing a cool thing. This is what the story's about. I told uh, a guy you guys may know named Jimmy Emery about Terry's story. And he said, oh, my kids play on a, on a soccer club. He should play on that one. In fact, can we help like, get him to practice too? We'll help get him there and take him home sometimes. I'm like, Jimmy, you have 18 kids. You can't take on another one. He said, no, 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 we'll do it. We'll make it happen. You know, we'll, we'll help buy his uniforms. Like, okay, great. Jimmy listened. Soccer coach for this club, it was, it was, a, it was a, a good club, but it wasn't one of the best clubs. He said, you know, Terry's really good. I think he needs to be on a better team. In fact, I've got a buddy who's a coach for a better squad. What if I talk to him and we get him in that club next year? This coach was listening to Terry's story. We go to the next team the next year, and he plays in this showcase tournament when all these scouts come, and some scouts from a little school in Winfield, Kansas, a Methodist school called Southwestern College. 
They heard Terry. They listened. First, they listened to his soccer skills. But then they reached out. They said, we want you to come to Southwestern. So I called them. I said, hey, you need to know this about Terry. This is his story. This is what he's going through. They said, great. We want to make this possible. I said, his mom doesn't speak a lick of English. His parents have never navigated the college trials. And, you know, he's trying to take the SATs in his fourth language. English is his fourth language. Like, are you ready for this? Yeah. We want to make this happen. They listened. So long story long, uh, Terry gets accepted into the, into the school, but then there's the issue of finances, right? And I'm his soccer dad, so I'm freaking out, going, God, how much am I on the hook here for, you know? And there's someone in this church who I had been sharing Terry's story with, and she said, you know, Scott, it's it's funny thing, I have a friend whose dad is on the board of trustees for Southwestern College. Actually, his grand, or my friend's grandfather used to be the president of Southwestern for like 20 years. Could I talk to them, please? Thank you. Yes. So we got on the phone, and I told them Terry's story, and they listened. And now the president of Southwestern College knows his name, and the board of trustees know his name, and they know his story, and scholarship committees at Southwestern know his name and know his story. And I'll tell you this, church, I want to end, like I said, on some good news. This past Friday was tough. It was hard. It was gut-wrenching. This past Friday, I saw images of angry white guys carrying Nazi flags and spewing hate on a college campus. And I thought about the kids that have to enter into that kind of environment. That's what I saw this past Friday. This Friday, I'm driving Terry to college. And I'm dropping him off for college. And he's going to play soccer in college, not because of me, but because there were dozens and hundreds and everyone in this room, whether you know it or not, you listened to his story because you made our youth ministry possible. And I never would have met him if it hadn't been for that mission trip. Hundreds of people listened to his story and they said, we want you here and we love you and we care about you and we want you to succeed. So on a weekend like this, it can be easy to see a lot of hatred and a lot of darkness and a lot of negativity. But church, there is, there is a lot of hatred in the world. But church, there's a lot of love in the world too. And the best way to find the hope and the love that this world has to offer is to sit down with someone and listen. Hear their story. Make sure they know that they're loved. That's all I got. Amen.